are recording, and you can go ahead and uh, you have to press play whenever you're ready. Well, we have to go back to the beginning. It is. I, it is. I moved it back. Yeah, all you have to do okay. is hit the button on the bottom, the space bar. Okay, so... Just hit the space bar, the button on the bottom. Space bar. Space bar. Space bar, right, right here. That's the space bar. Sorry. That's a button. <laughs> it's not back at the beginning. Now it is. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Crypticast. Uh, I am award-winning filmmaker Mark Ritchie, and beside me is... Uh, award-winning filmmaker Christian Stevrak. Put your phone down. We've got work to do. I have Dave Burian on the line. I've got oh. an answer. Oh, Dave, Dave is a cast member of ours. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, this is episode eight, and we are going to be talking about distribution. I think most indie filmmakers, if you've been following, you've been waiting for this particular episode. We've been hyping it. We talked about hype in episode seven, if you didn't get a chance to listen to it. Uh, but we're going to be talking about the fall of the DVD, the rise of VOD, what we call the magic hour of Hollywood. And distribution is part of what we, of, what, of, of I should say, what Linda Opst calls the new abnormal in Hollywood. And again, I'm going to, I'm going to push Linda's book, uh, not because we receive any sponsorship, but because it's an excellent book on uh, the, the state of, of Hollywood finances. Um, and it's called Sleepless in Hollywood. In any case, you really must be a cartographer to navigate the, the waters of distribution and do so cautiously. Um, well, this, is, this, this is my most hated topic of the industry, by the way. Yeah. Today, not even the, the people in charge of the studios have any idea where this industry is headed, where its audience is primarily engaged. They know that if they make another Marvel movie... You know, there's a built-in core of, you know, a couple of million people that are going to go see the next Iron Man or the next Spider-Man or the next Captain America movie. Uh, but once they run out of superhero movies to make, they're going to have to find another tentpole. And, you know, there's there's always Star Wars. There's some, some big action movie that they can market overseas. But, you know, with, with streaming, with video on demand, there's a new thing now called Kodi where you can, uh, I guess you buy an Amazon Fire card or fire whatever the device is you plug it in to your hdmi like the chromecast of sorts sort of it's like a i think it's a it's actually kind of like an itunes sort of setup but it has no content but you can attach now uh different plugins to it that people stream all kinds of content i'm hearing they're streaming stuff that's like playing in the theater oh really yeah i mean just bootleg stuff obviously but you know the, the the whole dynamic of of cinema is changing which is why scorsese and uh, Ridley Scott and people like that are saying cinema is dead. You know, the whole point of going to a theater as a as a group experience and seeing a movie together and and, and talking about it afterwards because you can't see it again until they show it again, or until you go back and pay to see it again, that's gone. You know, you can you can see a movie in the theater, go home and download it the same day yeah. most often. You know, yeah. somebody's ripped it off a theater screen in Mexico or somewhere, and so uh, a lot of people are watching movies on their phone, on their iPad. Uh, in the car, you know, it's it, it, the whole thing is changing, and so what is? And this is the new abnormal that yeah, Linda talks about. Very abnormal. You know, there's a, there's a quote that I actually want to because uh, we, we we often mention Linda's book. Uh, Linda Ops is a is a Hollywood producer. Uh, she works with Chris Nolan. She's an author. She's been in the industry for a very very long time. Worked at several of the studios, and she once had a conversation with Peter Chernin, who's the head of Fox Studios, and this is what he told her. People will look back and say that from the fi- from a financial point of view, 1995 through 2005 w- was the golden age of this generation of the movie business. You had big growth internationally, you had a big growth with DVDs, and that golden age 
is now over. The movie business, the historical studio business, if you put all the studios together, run at about a 10% profit margin. For every billion dollars in revenue they make, a hundred billion dollars in profit. I'm I'm sorry, a hundred million dollars in profit is made. So that is where I got that figure in our last podcast Mm -hmm. when I was talking about a 10% return. And, And then you have to introduce mass pirating and the introduction of streaming services in what we now call this new abnormal system of Hollywood. And it does offer us cheaper access to entertainment. In some cases, it offers us free access. It is. That's the that's the um, problem now. Is but that, it's cutting into the profits. Oh well, yeah, absolutely. Um, and that should now don't let this hinder you as an artist. You know, because it it will happen. I, we are lucky so far that our film has not yet been pirated and put online. But eventually, it will happen. Uh, that's just the way it is. And people in this particular time in history, uh, because of the ease of access and because of the huge storage devices we have in terms of memory, people want something now and they want it for nothing. And uh, most often they can get it, you know, depending on how how, uh, hard they're willing to look, you can find it. That may be why Kevin Smith, in our previous episode, we mentioned Kevin Smith suggesting that filmmakers begin podcasts to sort of begin a network amongst amongst your yourselves and your fellow filmmakers. But I think what he was talking about is you've got to come up with a free free content. You can't make a movie and expect it to be sold or expect to make money off of it because everyone's going to find a way to access it for free. You might as well just give them content for free. He said this generation of moviegoers wants content for free. They don't want to pay for anything. Yeah. Although, interestingly enough, I remember a couple of experiments. I think Devo did it once, and I can't remember who else. It might have been um, Radiohead or somebody, but they released a couple of, and this is, I'm talking like almost 10 years ago now, but they released a couple of albums and just released it onto iTunes and said, if you feel like paying us for this, give us whatever amount you feel is, is appropriate. And most people were giving, you know, five, ten bucks. Sure, so sure. a lot of people actually did pay for it, uh, which, is, which is encouraging. But I'm sure there were, you know, 10 million people who didn't want to pay for it. <laughs> Hollywood relies on these, you know, two things, basically. Blockbuster tentpole films and foreign audiences. And a lot of, we mentioned before in one of our previous podcasts about how even screenwriting is now becoming lowest common denominator because it needs to appeal to a foreign audience that doesn't necessarily have an American sense of humor or, you know, they need to understand tragedy. They need to understand that's why the horror industry is so successful in foreign markets. Everybody can be scared. Yeah. Being scared is a universal feeling. Or the you know? superhero movies. You know, somebody in a costume is knocking over a building. You don't need to speak English to know what's going to on. what's going on, yeah. correct. And, and, that's why, and so Hollywood is, has sort of abandoned the U.S. market. We are no longer the biggest Hollywood market. It's the foreign audiences that they're looking at, and they're making tentpole films for them. So I'm not, I don't want to go as far as blaming... The current generation. But I do want to blame the attitude that that we expect. I expect things for free online. I, I get angry when a YouTube ad pops up. Because I remember the day when YouTube didn't have ads. Yeah. And now I'm upset by that. But hey, look, these folks got to make money. They got to make a living. In order to keep that service functional, either we have to pay for it. It's a commercial. Or yeah. we have to suffer through the commercial. They're showing them now before movies. I remember in 1985, I saw Rambo. First Blood Part Two in a movie theater in Jerusalem, in Israel. And I was amazed because before the movie, instead of trailers, they showed commercials for dishwashers <laughs> and, and soap and food. And it was, and they were all in Hebrew. And I'm thinking, what? Why are they showing commercials before the. And there were a couple of trailers eventually. 
But now that's commonplace. You go to the yeah. movie theater and they're talking about TV shows yeah, and Coke commercials, and it's you're watching a bunch of horse shit watch, before the movie even yeah, starts. Yeah. yeah. Well, but fortunately, there's Maria Menounos hosting. <laughs> I love nice, Maria. Nice Greek girl. Um, so, unbeknownst to, to Chris and I, the, this transition in Hollywood, this new abnormal, was sort of happening under our noses, and we didn't realize it. So when we finally got to the point where we needed to distribute our film, I think we were in shock. Because the way distribution now functions in Hollywood is very different contractually than anything that we understood or had ever read about or had ever experienced from stories that we heard from other filmmakers. And like the financial markets in the world, the film distribution industry was was in this new abnormal. But not only that, even in the new abnormal, it was in constant flux. It's yeah. It's, no matter who we talked to, they were like, "I can't tell you what's going to happen." It's tomorrow. morphing almost daily. In fact, I posted on Facebook several months ago about this because a lot of people are saying, "What happened to Mortal Remains? Where is your movie?" The the, the long and the short of it is that Mark was very carefully doing his homework and finding out where we could distribute our movie and not lose our rights to it uh, and and be taken for a ride for a couple of thousand dollars. Or our return on investment. Or a return on investment because it's you know cost a few bucks to make that movie. Um, but I likened it to a game of chess because you're playing chess and you know certain pieces can move a certain way, a certain number of spaces, and it's like a game of chess where you come back to the board and suddenly there are all new pieces with all new rules of movement. And not only that, but the board is bigger with more spaces. And suddenly there are more people playing. And, and it makes no sense. And all the rules that you thought you understood now are completely out the window. And that, that happens, that's been happening for the past 10 years, probably for the past 20 years, uh, because of the rise of the internet, the rise of streaming video, and uh, the decline of home video, sadly. And I, I like the fact that there is now sort of a resurgence in uh, in retro, you know, people are buying vinyl again, and people are buying VHS tapes, uh, which we are currently surrounded by about four thousand VHS tapes because Mark has a nice collection, and uh, that's why we chose to release Mortal Remains. One of the reasons we chose to release it uh, on VHS first was because a it was cheap and easy to do, b it had that retro nostalgia feel about it with the old artwork and everything that I put together. And uh, see if anybody ripped it, pirated. The they'd film. have to go to a lot of trouble to put the fucker online. That's right. And so, it would look uh, awful. Yeah, and, um, and we purposely made it a sort of degraded, you know, third generation copy, so it looked like some kind of bootleg that you'd found off the shelf at Blockbuster. Yeah, you know, as filmmakers, we're always trying to rely on whatever sources we can find. And when we did our screening in L.A., we had several people attend who we were hoping would be there because we wanted to speak to them. Uh, first and foremost, Mark Starloff from uh, No Budget Film School. Stolaroff. Stolaroff. Forgive me. Forgive me, Mark. You're thinking of Boris Karloff. <laughs> Boris and, and I think it's his birthday. Mark's, happy birthday, happy Boris, Boris. Karloff. Uh, and, and, and Mark uh, said to us, you know, he, he was very honest. He said, look, I can't tell you what's going to happen tomorrow. The industry doesn't know what's going on. Nobody knows what's going on. This was several years ago, and it's it's still that way now. But one thing that I noticed when we talked to, to distributors was because of the decline of DVD and the fact that, that Hollywood was primarily vacating it except for some of the major releases like the, the Avengers films and the superhero packages that you know they were still selling, that 
because DVD sales were down and everyone was resorting to streaming and the financial return on streaming was significantly less than what you would get in a DVD sale... To, to the filmmaker. To the filmmaker, the profits were gone. So the distributors that we talked to were basically like, yeah, the, the, we're not getting the same profits. They've been cut in half. And guess what? The half that's missing is your half. Yeah. And so you're not going to see a return. Instead, you're going to get pennies on the dollar. And, um, you know, we're going to... The big question I had whenever we went to a distributor was, okay, no problem. I un we got to the point where we accepted we weren't going to make a freaking dime. We said, okay, we understand that. So what what is the value to us as, as independent filmmakers in getting this film out there? Because uh, we're not going to certainly just hold on to it. And, and that was exposure, which you had mentioned in one of our previous podcasts. We want exposure. And so my question to them would be, great, so how are you going to promote our film so that we have exposure above and beyond the fan base that we've already created? And they wouldn't have an answer for us. They'd come back and say, well, that's your job. Well, what do you mean that's my job? If I'm going to promote my film, I might as well sell it on my own damn website. And the guy who did give us an answer said, oh, social media. And I said, well, we've been doing that ourselves for three <laughs> years now. Thank you very much. And, 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 you know, these guys had less followers than we did on their own distribution sites. But again, hearkening... So who were they promoting to? Yeah, hearkening back to what we said in an earlier podcast, the there's such a glut of material now because filmmaking is so easy, so accessible these days. Uh, there is such a glut of, of product. Oversaturation. Oversaturation yeah. of the market that they, you know, any anybody that wants to set up shop and call themselves a dis distributor can do so and they'll buy these you know lowest common denominator films for a couple of bucks here and there and then buy them outright and then sell the whole package in you know five or six movies at once to Netflix or to iTunes or whatever and they will see the profit and the filmmaker well he's you know he got his check for $1500 or whatever and that's it he's out of the picture and so again the most you can hope for is exposure uh, which is not bad i mean exposure is good you want people to see your film especially if it's if it's a quality uh, production and maybe somebody will will be intrigued by it and want you to do more work. That's the you know hopefully something will come of it. But a lot of these guys are that's all they do is they're called aggregators. And unless you're lucky enough to have a film that has some some reputable stars in it that makes its way to Sundance that wins an award and and is picked up by the Weinstein Company, I think La La Land, right? But we're, we're independent filmmakers. We're we're not making La La Land. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, we're we're making indie films that are sometimes on a micro budget or sometimes just above that. Uh, we're not talking about five million dollar. The minute you're making a five million dollar feature, you're part of the system. <laughs> There's just no doubt about it. If you're lucky enough to have that kind of income for your film from investors, you're in the game. Uh, you you really almost can't even consider yourself an indie filmmaker. Um, you're out there, you know, playing with the big boys, mm -hmm. and your chances of getting into Sundance are far greater. But for the for the for the small for the small fries like us, it's a struggle to get the word out there. But but also to to find a distribution network that allows you to retain your rights and any sort of return on your investment. But but th that's all changing. And I think I'd like to think that it's changing to our benefit. I want to I want to mention another quote from Linda Opp's book, again uh, Peter Chernin, who said, "Distribution and production." Well, I'm sorry. Now, actually, this is a quote just from Linda herself. Distribution and production were the bottlenecks through which the studios used to control movie making, and that's so very true. Back in the '80s, you were either part of the Hollywood system or you weren't a filmmaker at all. 
uh, the indie market was was my gosh almost non-existent if you were making uh, indie films you were you were I'm thinking troika I mean you were making low budget low low budget you know horror films this sort of thing but only the studios had the funds for production and distribution was nearly impossible to penetrate and that has completely changed we now as independent filmmakers have a voice we have a voice not only for distribution but we have a voice for speaking to the world audience thanks to youtube thanks to social media i mean my gosh revolutions have been started thanks to social media uh and you're telling me i can't seem to get my film scene yeah uh you know bullshit you just need you need to pound the pavement you need to get out there you need to you need to push your product you need to you know embrace hype and you need to make it happen um, opportunities are are at your fingertips in this new sort of Hollywood paradigm. Um, so much so that agents and distributors are now a thing of the past. I mean, no longer do you have to give away the rights and the profits to your project. Um, a, a perfect example would be what we just did to get our film released on iTunes. We simply opened up our own damn distribution arm of the company, and we got to work. And we're going to be releasing Mortal Remains over the summer, and we're going to be retaining... You know all of the rights to our film, seventy percent of the profits, but you have to work at it. I mean, you have to be willing to embrace the business side of it, which a lot of indie filmmakers don't want to do. But if you really, if you love your art, I mean, and I'm not saying you love your art as a as the craft. I'm talking about if you love your product. I just happen to love our film. I really, yeah. I'm proud of it, and I like it, and I and enjoy again, it. It's fun. If you're if you're wondering why. If we are distributing our own film and we're only getting seventy percent profit, again, don't don't forget there's a cost to distributing. You know that you have to pay for advertising. There are certain things you have to buy. And pay iTunes for. takes the rest, yeah. <laughs> or Netflix takes their cut. You know, the, theatrical re- release traditionalists call this a second class way to release films. Basically, it, it's for them. It's like little more than shuffling the deck to place the ancillary revenue cycle before the theater part. But let me tell you, as an indie filmmaker, you're not going to be releasing theatrically. You know why? Because like we mentioned before, the The studios studios own the theaters. (laughs) And so, you know, until you get to the point where you can, where you've established a name in the indie market, where you're being recognized by others that are, that are higher up in the industry who recognize your work or you end up having stars who like your work. They like your independent work and they want to be in your next project. And then suddenly you have a package that you can ship to Sundance and, and have screen where you have an international worldwide market. Until that happens, you know, you're going to be relying on YouTube, Vimeo. You're going to be relying on creating your own distribution company as we did. Um, because you can't just go to iTunes and, and ask iTunes to release your film. They won't do it. You need to establish a relationship with them through an aggregator or you, you establish a company and you build a relationship with the aggregator yourself. And this is sort of how the system now works, but it's not such a bad thing for us indie filmmakers. If you and I were trying to make... I mean, I think one of the thing, one of the reasons why we never got a feature done was we back in the 80s and 90s, we kept saying, well, there's no way for us to ever get it distributed. Yeah. You know what I mean? I, until Sundance came along. And then we were all excited about Sundance. And then, of course, Blair Witch hits it big in but Sundance. Then, again, to bring up Rodriguez's book, Robert Rodriguez. Yep, yep. yep. Uh, he, because he was... He had family in Mexico, family and friends that lived down there. And he was familiar with uh, the Mexican uh, market. And so he was going to make a cheap action movie on VHS, he edited, shot it and edited it on VHS. He was going to cut it together and release it 
in in Mexico on some you know home video company in Mexico was gonna and suddenly just by virtue of the quality of his filmmaking this tape of his movie kept getting passed around from office to office and suddenly word got out that this guy knew how to make a movie and they said well how much did it cost and he's like well I, you know 800 bucks or whatever he spent <laughs> and he did it himself they said well who was your crew he said me me and my friend we're you know we, we right did everything a crew. yeah and uh, that can still be done especially today uh, because you know VHS was easy enough that's how Mark and I got our start filming you know shorts and uh, now you can, like I said earlier, you can film a movie with your phone, with your iPad. You know, you can edit on that device. You can, you can make a movie now more easily than it was ever able to be made before, uh, simply by virtue of the technology that is available. And cheaply. Yeah. And cheaply. Even if you have to rent your equipment. There are places that will do that. You can rent a camera. You can rent, uh, you know, cable. You can rent whatever you need to make a movie. But, you know, th- the trick is to make it. When, you know, when you said, when you had suggested that we release on, on VHS, I laughed and chuckled and thought, you know, well, is, is, is that the end-all, be-all of our film? And and lo and behold, we ended up sending copies worldwide, you know. But but you had done your research on this sort of VHS analog renaissance that was going mm-hmm. on. These collectors that were buying up VHSs on, on eBay and so forth. And I was completely unaware of this underground operation that was that was... You know, hitting big, and you saw an opportunity, a window for us to be able to promote the film in a new and enlightening way, and it works. It's it's it a works. retro, yeah. It's an it's, it's a nostalgia thing. I mean, look, right now we're surrounded, like I said, by four thousand videotapes because you like the way it looks. It's a you know, it's an old, degraded, sort of a comfortable look. That's I was true. telling you last night that the TV, these high def TVs that make even old movies, they look like video because yeah. of the frame rate difference or something. They just look too. It looks like Chris, a soap opera, yeah. Completely. It doesn't look like a movie. I think you're going to see a lot more of that coming back. A lot of people reaching for the past, both in uh, terms of execution and in terms of content. And that's already been happening with, you know, the Grindhouse movie resurgence with, you know, Hobo with a Shotgun and Tarantino and Rodriguez's Grindhouse. You Which know. may suggest that, that DVD, at least during our lifetime, may have a resurgence. Oh, it, sure. It itself may have a renaissance. And, and you know, nowadays uh, uh, a lot of folks want to go through a distributor to have their film released in, on DVD. Yes, if you want to get your film into Walmart, you're going to need an aggregator because Walmart won't talk won't talk to you unless you have an aggregator. But an aggregator being a distributor, it's just what another term for a distributor. What was that big company? Was it E-Media or something that they would get? Yeah, well, there are any number of aggregation yeah, companies, but there were certain, distribution certain companies. That big one particular company the, uh, that they would get you, because you could see. You E1, go to, E1. E1, that's, that's it. Yeah, you, go to, you go to Walmart and you, you look at these these uh, cheap horror movies that are on the shelf, but they're on DVD on the shelf at Walmart, available for purchase. And uh, if you look at the back, there's always some little distribution company, which is the aggregator. And, the, and typically, on the other side, you'll see E1. And E1 is the, one of the big companies that buys these packages of inexpensive films and they, they you know they they're, and they're buying them from the aggregator so you yeah. sell to a distributor your distributor packages a bunch of horror films or a bunch of like-minded films together genre films and then sells them to E1 to distribute so by the by the time you get your cut it's one third of, of what you were hoping for yeah. but and and so everybody is getting their slice of the pie but you know we discovered this because we were talking to an aggregator who was like, "Yes, I'm just going to go ahead and send it off to E1." I said, "Well, wait a minute. Why are why aren't you distributing distributing this thing 
to Walmart. Well, I don't do that, but I know of a company that does. Well, wait a minute. Why don't I just go to that company then and have them distribute it to yeah, Walmart? Yeah, why are we giving Why am you I 20%? giving you a cut to have somebody else do the work? Yeah. Um, and, and, and nowadays, it just got to the point where we were like, you know what? We're going we're gonna to release our, our film on DVD later on in the summer, and we're going to do it through our own w- website. And by the way, we did have you know, at least one good offer from a reputable uh, DVD distribution company uh, that wanted to release the film as it is on DVD and on Blu-ray, and uh, we decided not to go that route just because, uh, you know, again, we wanted to retain control over the production and uh, and have uh, more legitimate clout as to what we could do with our property. And nowadays, there's no excuse. Uh, I mean, my God, you don't even need iTunes technically. You, there are so many other uh, avenues by which you can stream and, and, and promote your film, be it YouTube or... or uh, uh, my Vimeo, they all have these pay sites that you can now, you know what I mean, and you get advertising dollars based on how many you know downloads you have, how many streams you have, and so right. forth. But you can with PayPal, I mean that's how we set up our merch page with PayPal. Thank God for PayPal, yeah, because all, all the credit card transactions can take. I don't even have to worry. All about this stuff it. can be done online. But you, can, you can sell your DVDs. That's how we sold our VHS uh, copies. My point being is that this this new abnormal, this this Hollywood distribution paradigm, is ever changing. And every, it seems like every month there's, there are new opportunities for filmmakers to be able to push the boundaries and get exposure, get their films released, get them out there. And I'm not saying necessarily for free. You don't have to just upload to YouTube and go, well, there's my film. That is one way of getting exposure. And there are people who are doing web series that are getting development deals with and studios. By that, the way, happening. there's absolutely no reason not to do that. If you, if you can, if you can afford to make a short film or even a feature-length film and upload it to YouTube and, and, sh- and screen it for free just to people that want to see it, to see what you can do, that's always an option. You know, you can't expect to make money the first time out of the gate, but, you know, exposure will get you work if, you're, if your work is creative and if you, uh, if you finish your projects. And that's kind of where we are. I mean, it, it, anybody can make a movie and upload it if, the, if you want people to pay to see it. That's a different kettle of fish. You know, a few years ago, we were we were told by a friend that works at Sony Pictures that we were basically he basically said we're witnessing the slow demise of the studio system. And I I, I didn't quite understand what he was saying until until now. It's, it's now eight years later, nine years later. I, I didn't quite understand what he meant by that statement. But our point with this podcast is that now more than ever, there's no excuse not to finish your film. And get it out to the world. This is this is just the beginning of what's going to prove to be a very unique time in the movie making business. And you can consider yourself a pioneer uh, because we do, um, which is one of the reasons why we chose to do this podcast. Now, this is the the end, so to speak, of our uh, commentary within the podcast itself. But we have two more episodes, episode 9 and 10, which is going to be a double feature because we're putting those episodes together. We're going to be interviewing Eduardo Sanchez, director of the Blair Witch Project, somebody who's in the trenches, somebody who has been through the indie world, the indie filmmaking scene, and he's seen it all since 1999. He's made his Um, mark on movie history, and he still has to fight to get a film made. To get a film made. Um, And so we're going to be talking with Ed uh, so that he can share his stories from the trenches with you folks. And again, if you have any questions, um, you know, we don't have a commentary section uh, underneath our, our, on our podcast webpage. 
Um, but we do encourage you to contact us. Feel free, if, if any of the information you got in our first eight episodes is intriguing to you or you want us to expand on something, don't hesitate to contact us. Our door is always open. We're always happy to help independent filmmakers share our experiences and take yeah. it, you know. Look us up on Twitter, at Cryptic Pictures or uh, crypticpictures.com. You can email me. You can email Mark. Any questions you may have about the process or, you know, if you just just want to you know, a shoulder to cry on and then some supporting uh, positive words. We're, we're, we're here, you know, we're here to help because we support indie filmmakers all over the world. We've, we've, we've been to the puppet show and we've seen the strings. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, maybe we're crazy for holding on to our film for as long as we have before we released it. Because uh, it's been, it's been, you know, we had our first screening. My God, it was three years ago um, but we, we had our reasons and and you know like Chris said maybe your reasons are just to get exposure just to let the world know that you're a filmmaker and, and you know release something for free the key here is get it out there get it done don't let the hurdles that you're going to face prevent you from being successful in the market um, so that's going to wrap up this portion, uh, episode eight, distribution. Again, if you have any questions, contact us. We want to thank everybody for listening and all of your support, all the people that have contacted us since our podcast has been released. Um, we, we really appreciate all the support that you guys have given, all of our Twitter fans, followers, I should say, all of our Facebook fans. All the people um, that have helped us make our movie, all the people that acted uh, in our movie, and you know everyone that enjoyed our movie and saw our movie and wants to see our movie. And, and pretty soon you will have that opportunity. Uh, folks, uh, keep listening. Uh, our next two episodes, big interview with Eduardo Sanchez. Thank you guys so much for listening.